0: Well, last week, we considered the death of pride in the death of Jesus Christ. Those who have found salvation in Jesus have no cause for boasting. Christians, though, might be tempted to boast. We considered three areas that we might be tempted to boast in last week. In self-righteousness, in ethnic or personal superiority, or in our preferential religious practices. But there's no place for pride in any of these things because our favor with God is by grace alone. None of those things bring favor from God. Instead, that favor is graciously offered in Jesus. All we can do is respond with the open arms of faith. And that's what our text this morning is all about, responding to the graciousness of God with open arms of faith. Now, if we were in Paul's original audience, we would maybe be thinking that he's breaking with the witness of Israel's scriptures on this point. And so Paul needs to demonstrate to his Jewish audience that his gospel message is actually in continuity with Israel's scriptures. So he's going to do this by identifying both Abraham and David as examples of faith-based reconciliation with God and that faith-based reconciliation leaves no room for boasting. Now, in this sermon, we'll consider the two examples of Abraham and David that are given here, and then we'll consider the implications for our own life. So let's start with the example of Abraham in verses 1 through 5. Now, before we can even consider this example, if you look at verse 1, depending on the Bible translation you're using, you may see some footnotes with alternative translations at the bottom of your Bible. In the CSB, it translates it as, "'What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found?' Um, I think that it's going to be better to take the footnote in the CSB, the alternate translation that says, What then shall we say? Have we found Abraham to be our forefather according to the flesh? Now, I'm just making this comment now, it actually doesn't matter for this sermon, but it does matter for next week's sermon. Because what Paul is doing is constructing a larger argument in which he's going to demonstrate that even Gentiles can be children of Abraham because he's our father according to faith, not according to the flesh. But his starting point is showing that Abraham received righteousness according to faith, not according to his fleshly works. So I'm leaving that for you to think about this week as you read the Bible. Think about this alternate translation. Um, If you're using the CSB, it's in the footnote. What then shall we say? Have we found Abraham to be our forefather according to the flesh? Paul will answer negatively, no, he's our father according to faith. But for now, we can set that issue aside because Paul isn't going to answer that question until um, the following sermon. So we have to we have to give him time to work up to it. The way he does that is by seeing or showing us how righteousness comes through faith, not through our fleshly works. So let's set set aside that issue. In this text, Paul immediately quotes from Genesis fifteen six. A text early in the Abraham narrative demonstrating that Abraham's faith in God and in God's promises rather than works are what brought Abraham righteousness in God's sight. So this short text that Ben has already read, um, Paul, Paul immediately appeals to the Old Testament here in Genesis 15, 6. And in so doing, he uses an analogy of wages for work completed. So when it comes to Abraham's righteousness, it's a gift that's received, it's not a wage that is earned. He points out that if someone receives something for what they have done, they're just being paid for it because they've earned it. Um, If that were the case for Abraham, he'd have something to boast about. Um, That payment is received not as an unearned credit, but as a deserved payment if you're working for your righteousness. But God's gift of righteousness, along with all of his covenantal promises, are not earned or deserved, they're gifted. He argues that Abraham received a gift, he didn't receive a wage. This is particularly important because in so many ancient Jewish texts, Abraham is described as having worked and then received righteousness, of having obeyed and then been granted righteousness. So in the traditional teaching of Paul's day, everyone would look at Abraham as a prime example of someone who did what was right and then received the payment of righteousness. But Paul is saying prior to Abraham doing anything, only on the basis of his faith was Abraham credited as righteousness. He uses this metaphor of a financial transaction to get the point across. Interestingly, the word for gift here, when Paul says that he received it as a gift, not as something that was owed, is this Greek word charis. Maybe you've known someone named charis before, but it's just a Greek word for grace. What Paul is trying to say is that this righteousness is a gift, but it's a gift of grace. That's what's being emphasized here. So in this brief example, I mean, we, we, could, we only need to spend three minutes to capture what Paul is saying because he puts it so pointedly, but there are at least three concepts that we can't miss when we examine this example. First, we can't miss That Paul's implication that those who exercise belief and those who have faith, their faith credited as righteousness, are the ungodly, not the godly. So we can't overlook this fact. The ungodly are those who are without righteousness, meaning that they can't earn it or deserve it. And even Abraham, as Paul is pointing out, was ungodly. So it's not the godly who deserve righteousness and therefore receive it. It's the ungodly who receive righteousness as a gift from God. In Genesis, if you read this Abraham story starting in Genesis 12, it's very clear that Abraham was not a worshiper of God when God called him. Abraham didn't worship God. In fact, in Joshua, um, the book of Joshua describes Abraham as a moon worshiper. He was worshiping false gods. He was committing idolatry. He was ungodly at the time of God's call. Abraham received the call and received righteousness, not because he was godly and already righteousness, but because he had a righteousness deficit. He needed righteousness. And the implication then is that every person is ungodly. If even Abraham, the great father of Israel, was ungodly at the time of his calling, so too are all others. But through faith in God's promises, every person can have their faith credited as righteousness. Okay, so that's the first implication. Everyone is ungodly. Second, Paul draws out God's gracious gifting of righteousness. It's only God who can justify or righteousify the ungodly. The ungodly cannot do it themselves. It has to be done by God alone. So it must be done by a gift. It's God's gift. It's initiated only by God. In the Abraham example, Abraham did not initiate this interaction with God. God initiated it. And he gave the righteousness as a gift. So in his grace, God called Abraham out of captivity to idolatry. He pronounced him righteous, offering the forgiveness of sin and equipping him with righteousness in the covenantal promises. So it's only through a faith response to God's gift of grace that Abraham could stand in the right before God. Third, Paul points out that the gift of righteousness is received through faith, it's something that's received. Again, it's not something that's earned. It's taken in through a transfer of trust that is placed in God and his promises. It's never earned or deserved. Um, It's received through trust alone. Sometimes we talk about justifying ourselves or um, proving our righteousness. You know, if you've ever been in an argument and you tried to justify what you've done, you're trying to earn your righteousness. You're trying to show that you're standing in the right. Well, Paul's showing us that Abraham couldn't stand in the right before God, outside of God causing him to stand in the right. And that could only happen as Abraham responded to him through faith. Now, when we talk about the gift of faith and responding through faith, we can sometimes misunderstand what is going on here and we can think of it as a contractual relationship. As if Abraham just traded faith for righteousness in a one-time transaction and then he went on his merry way. But faith or trust is not a contractual reality it's a covenantal reality. A faith or trust-based relationship is not about an exchange of goods, but the initiation of a covenantal relationship. We'll consider this idea of a covenant more next week, but notice that God credits righteousness to Abraham within the context of a covenantal relationship, not a one-time encounter with God that's left in the past. Um, It's It's kind of hard to explain, but basically a covenant forms a family relationship, and that's what God did with Abraham. Uh, What's more, the very nature of a free gift is that it involves the initiation of a relationship. Now, sometimes when we talk about gifts, we talk about receiving something free and then moving on, no obligation to the person who gave it to us, but that's not actually how gifts work. Gifts always come with obligations. They, They always do. Um, you don't earn the gift, but you do have an obligation to the gift giver. If the gift giver is manipulative or evil, then the gift itself is not gracious and the obligations are burdensome. Um, So I was talking quite a while ago with Janice and Josh about gift giving in Japan. And Janice told me of a phrase, uh, a free gift is the most expensive thing in the world. In, In places where... Culture is closer to Paul's culture. A free gift is the most expensive thing in the world because you owe an obligation to the giver of the gift. Now, if the gift giver again is is evil, the gift isn't gracious, but if the gift giver is good and kind, then that gift is something desirable, and so are the obligations that come along with the gift. The obligations are not a burden, but a delight. What's more, when the gift is righteousness, that righteousness that is gifted to you enables you to fulfill the obligations of the gift. It, fulf- it, it allows you, it equips you to walk in relationship with the gift giver. So I think what I'm trying to get across here that's sort of hard to communicate is that in many ways of sharing the gospel, when we talk about the gospel as a free gift, we can unintentionally communicate that you can grab the gift and go and never relate to the gift giver. But that's not how gift giving works. Gift giving always forms a relationship and it includes obligations to the gift giver. That obligation is carried out through covenant as we walk in faith with God. The example of Abraham, if we went back and read Genesis 12 through 22, the example of Abraham would go on to show the importance of a lifelong faith. Paul will refer to this later on in the chapter. He'll talk about how Abraham's faith didn't waver. And ultimately what he's getting at is that Abraham never abandoned the gift giver. He never gave up completely, even though he did falter along the way in his faith. Faith is always a call to lifelong faithfulness. And it's always initiated by the grace and kindness of God. So first we have the example of Abraham and we need to take away from it that we're all ungodly, that righteousness is a gift of grace, and that grace obligates us to a life of faithfulness to the gift giver. Second, Paul gives us the example of David. Now, Paul is basically repeating himself here just with a different figure. He says that David speaks of the same things. Um, So in the first example, He appeals to Abraham, the greatest patriarch of Israel, and now he appeals to David, the greatest king of Israel, to show that righteousness is a gift of grace in both situations. Um, In this case, he doesn't quote the verse first and give the explanation. He gives an explanation and then quotes the verse. And what he's trying to do here is to tie together the blessing that David experienced with the blessings promised to Abraham. So in the Abraham narrative, God promised Abraham great blessing. One of those great blessings we'll come to see in the David example is the forgiveness of sins the heart of the blessing to Abraham is experienced here by David, and it's to be credited righteous apart from works. Um, David is considered Israel's greatest king, and rightly so. But David also committed a lot of sin. Uh, If you read the Old Testament, David was not an upstanding guy in every regard. He sinned deeply. Um, But... David didn't hide his sins in the end, and that's what allows us to look to him as a really good example here. He didn't hide his sins from God, instead he repented, he confessed his sin, and he received forgiveness from God. Uh, One of David's most well-known confessions of sin is in Psalm 51, but there's another confession of sin in Psalm 32, and that's what Paul is drawing from here. At the start of that psalm, David acknowledges that the way to find blessing in the midst of your sin is not to hide it, but to appeal to God to cover it, to atone for it, to appeal to God to forgive it. Unfortunately, in our CSB translation of this psalm, the word credited is lost in verse eight, so I'll just give you a a different translation. Blessed is a person who the Lord will never credit with sin. So the opposite side of being credited with righteousness is not being credited with sin. And that's what's in view here. Now, Although Paul only quotes the first two verses of this psalm, it's reasonable for him to expect his readers to know the whole thing and to read the rest of it. And in the remaining portion of Psalm 32, David speaks of the burden of captivity to sin and the pervasive guilt that he experienced prior to returning to the Lord. These are the same things that Paul has already described in Romans 1 through 3. But then David calls his readers to immediately confess their sin to God instead of holding on to it. He speaks of the many pains that come to the wicked, but he explains that the one who trusts the Lord will have God's faithful love surrounding him. And he concludes the whole psalm with this relevant phrase. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Those who confess their sin to the Lord are credited not as sinners, but as righteous. And for that reason, they can be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Now, Paul has cleverly woven together his argument to address the concerns that his original audience would have had. His primary question that, they, that he was trying to answer is, do Jews get to fully participate in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant? And the answer to that is yes. But further, the question is, what about Gentiles? What about non-Jews? Do they get the full blessings of the Abrahamic covenant as well? And Paul is showing here that they receive the full blessing of forgiveness of sin, not by their flesh connection to Abraham, because they aren't fleshly descendants of Abraham, but because of their faith connection to Abraham. Now, next week, we'll consider the fact that the rest of the Abrahamic blessings are offered to them as well. But here, what's primarily in view is that the blessing of forgiveness of sin and righteousness that was originally gifted to Abraham is now available for all people. And ultimately, Paul will show us that it's available through Jesus Christ alone. So again, this is a really short example, but there's one key idea that I don't want you to miss from the Davidic example. That is that confession of sin and um, expression of faith in God is not a one-time event, but it's a way of life. So we talk often about the gospel being for all of life. This is one of the ways that the gospel is for all of life. That whenever we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And we must do this as a regular practice in our life, not just at the moment of conversion, but whenever we stray from the Lord and falter in our faith and walk into sin. The Christian life is not about a one time prayer of confession, it's not about one moment of conversion. But hundreds of moments of conversions throughout our life, when we recognize that we have turned away from faithfulness to God, then we return to him as we confess, repent, and are assured of forgiveness of sin in him, the blessed one. So the gospel is not just about an initial relationship with God, but an ongoing relationship of God marked by repentance and faith. Third, the application for us. So we've seen the example of David and the example of Abraham, but then Paul transitions from these examples to point out the application of all of these things being written down for us. Now the for us, obviously, originally, is for Paul's readers, the church in Rome. But we share in the same communion as these early Christians, with the result that the us in Romans Includes us at Resurrection Church. So when you read in verse 23 that these things were written down for us, that's for us in this room, not just for the Roman Church, but for all of the communion of the saints. That's what we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed a few moments ago. In verse 23, Paul concludes by noting the phrase, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. He goes on to explain that righteousness will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justifications. It's in these closing statements that give us direction for how we ought to respond to the examples of Abraham and David and how we ought to receive the truth about the blessing of righteousness and forgiveness of sin that comes through faith. So I want to give you four of them here. First, the communion of saints. We should consider the community aspect of the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness, the blessings of the promises, and the possibility of a covenantal relationship with God are fully available to us just as they were to Abraham and David and everyone in between. What's more, we have to see this gift of righteousness that we receive through faith as part of the redemptive work that God has been doing through all time. So our participation in the righteousness of God connects us to the redemptive work of God throughout history. Our covenantal belonging to God, then, is in continuity with Abraham's and David's. We enter into all of those promises. The Sunday school song that most of us grew up singing about Father Abraham having many sons and being one of them, that's true. It's profoundly true because what was written down about Abraham is also written down for us. It's a true depiction of our Christian heritage. This means that our Christian faith is nothing new, it's just the flowering of the seeds of promise given to Abraham and his descendants. As such, Our Christian faith has always been a communal faith that's included forgiveness and family belonging. To be a Christian then is to belong to the community of faith. To belong to the community of faith, that extends all the way back to Abraham. That includes those who have gone before us and who have already passed away. It includes those across the globe. It includes those in this very church. To be a Christian is not to have an isolated relationship with God, but to be added to the family of God. Our righteousness is a community-oriented righteousness. That's written down for us, plural, not for individuals alone. So by implication then, it seems that one way that our faith is sustained and our righteousness is cultivated is through a covenantal commitment to the family of faith, by identifying ourselves with other Christians and living out our faith with them. In fact, as we'll see next week, this is the thrust of all of Romans chapter 4. Paul is trying to say that anyone who's received the righteousness of God through faith belongs to the family of God. Now weirdly, In our culture, a lot of Christians, I think, are wanting to not belong to the family of God and be isolated Christians, where in Paul's day, there were Gentiles who really did want to fully belong to the family of God. So we're dealing with separate issues. Paul's trying to convince them, yes, you really do belong here. You're welcome here. I'm trying to convince you, you must belong with other Christians. Your Christianity cannot be taken in isolation. It's very strange that we have the very opposite problem that Paul's readers did, but his truth works in both directions. To be a Christian is to belong to the larger family of God, living and dead, local and global. You cannot be a Christian in isolation. You cannot be a Lone Ranger Christian. One of the most immediate ways that we deal with this is by connecting with a local church, but not just on Sundays, it's, it's very important to connect with the local church on Sundays, but to integrate all of your life into the community of faith. So I want to encourage you, whether you're a member here or not, to connect more deeply with the family of God represented by Resurrection Church, not just on Sundays, but Sunday through Saturday. It's also important for us to remember as a local church that we are not the only true Christians that there are true and faithful Christians elsewhere in our city and the South Metro and our state and our country in the world. And when we gather, we must avoid thinking that we have everything right, that we're the true expression of the body of Christ. We're one member of the body of Christ. We're one piece, one part, one expression of it. So we ought to work hard to cultivate relationships with other Christians and other churches. One of the ways that we do this is that we pray for other churches on Sundays. In fact, we prayed for Westview Church this morning, and we should keep considering how we ought to partner with them as they're going through this very difficult time with this life-changing injury to Brett's daughter. One of the ways that our church is going to do this is... You guys are going to, whether you know it or not, maybe you're hearing it now for the first time, you're going to allow me to preach at their church on September 3rd so Brett can have a weekend off. Um, We hopefully will give them a financial gift. We need to connect with other Christians, recognizing that we aren't the only instantiation of the body of Christ. Instead, we're just part of it. And as we do so, as we share in that communion together with saints past, present, and future, I believe that our righteousness will be more deeply cultivated and our faith will be strengthened as we walk in covenantal relationship with God. Second, we need to consider our need for grace. We must always be reminded of our need for grace and our need for God's righteousness. We need to be gifted righteousness because left to our own dispositions, We could never attain it. We could never conjure it up. We could never earn it or deserve it because we're sinners. We're the kind of people who trespass against God instead of aligning ourselves with him. For that reason, we need God's grace. We're captive to sin. We're complicit in it and guilty before God. So it's only by his grace that we can be declared pardoned, and it's only by his grace that we can have a restoration of glory we need grace. And we need to remember that every single day. Our righteousness is not of our own. It's only a gift from God. But God's grace is greater than our sin. And in his grace, he faithfully offers the gift of righteousness to the ungodly. So for all of us here, um, we need to think of ourselves rightly. We need to think of ourselves as we ought. If you are with us, and you have never recognized that you are ungodly before God, and that the only solution to your ungodliness is the gift of righteousness offered through Jesus, then the way to respond to this text is to confess your standing as ungodly before God and open your arms in faith to receive righteousness from him alone. Third, we need to recognize the gift of Jesus— We need to consider the means by which God secured righteousness for us. The causative means by which righteousness is secured is the life and death of Jesus. He was offered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. Our only hope is in connection to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Paul interestingly says that he was raised for our justification. Our gospel is not just that Jesus died for our sins, but that he was raised for them as well. And as we tie into Jesus's resurrection life by faith, we experience a resurrection life of our own um, already in the present. I appreciated the way that Josh phrased that in his prayer of confession that we have been raised already, and the spiritual resurrection that we've experienced now anticipates the final resurrection from the dead that we'll receive on the final day. Our faith is not an abstract faith, but a faith in the Jesus who died and rose for us, for our sins, and who gifts us the gift of righteousness. Finally, then, we have one ultimate response, and that is to respond with faith. We must respond to the gift of God with faith. We must respond to God's self-giving with the gift of righteousness with our act of faith. We must respond by entrusting ourselves to God, by believing in his character and his acts, by entering into a covenantal family relationship through faith alone. As I've already hinted, Abraham did not have a vague sense of faith, but he had faith connected to the promises and the character of God. He believed God's promise to give him a son. He believed in God's character to to have the power to do it. In Romans 4, Abraham is described as believing in the God who could bring life to the dead, who could call into existence things that did not exist. Well, God proved that he could do that in Isaac and he proved it all the more in Jesus so we can have faith that he will do that for us as well, that he will call the righteousness that does not exist in us into existence through Jesus. It's in this God that we must place our faith, not a vague sense of faith, but faith in the promises and the character of God. But even as we ought to respond in faith, we recognize that our faith is never perfect. Our faith is always incomplete. It's weak. And ultimately, God doesn't require a perfect faith, as we see from the example of Abraham. Even still, the basic orientation of faith is demanded. We must turn to him and entrust ourselves to God. Not with a perfect faith. We know that it's not needed to be perfect, or else the ongoing gift of forgiveness isn't needed. The very example of David shows us that faith and obedience are never perfect for God's people. That's why we need ongoing forgiveness. But faith is demanded. We must turn to him and entrust ourselves to God alone. And when we do that, when we give ourselves over to God, when we connect to the blessing of Abraham through faith in the God of life and receive the credit of righteousness, this is the outcome. Paul explains it in Romans 5 in the first verses. The outcome of our faith in God is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Our faith draws us into a relationship with God in which we boast about him and his righteousness and his grace. There's no longer alienation between people and God, but reconciliation and peace. There's no longer captivity to sin. There's only standing in grace. There's no longer death. There's only life. So every one of us, as we reflect on God's grace that's greater than our sin... The response that we had at our conversion is the response that we must have every day to repent and to trust in jesus relying on his grace alone for righteousness and life and glory let's commit to do this together as a community of faith god we thank you for the examples of abraham and david and we confess that at times we are disinterested in your righteousness At other times, we frantically work to earn it or to cultivate it on our own. We ask that you would set aside these two sinful dispositions and instead incline us toward you with open arms of faith, ready to receive the righteousness that can come only by your grace. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.